folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773's Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And as I continue to poke around in the regional um, bastions of music and rhythm in this country that were happening well before I was born, I uh, serendipitously ran into just a legendary character and a great drummer, Carl T. Himmel, and he talked about spending time in New New Orleans and uh, and hit me to this other drummer who, you know, <laughs> I figure after, um, you know, connecting with uh, Herlin Riley and Joe Lasty and Johnny Vidakovich and, and the list goes on and on and on, but, you know, you figure you get to, you reach a point where you, you maybe got to all the cats and then you realize there's just so many more and, I get a chance today to bring in a guy who uh, has really been uh, cutting it up for quite a few decades now in a lot of different musical settings. And like I said, he's based in New Orleans, uh, a bastion of, uh, of gumbo music, really one of some of the last regional music in this country uh, since we've become fully interconnected. And uh, really an honor. Alan Robinson, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor, man. Um, I just wanted you to talk to the audience a little bit about, um, you know, I, the idea of did you did you think in bar lines or did you feel them, but just try to play through the bar lines? And I, what I mean by that is like Elvin knew there were bar lines, but he didn't think like that. He he just played through them, and obviously that sort of uh feel uh propelled coltrane to be able to play what ultimately became that modal music otherwise if if he had had a drummer that thought in bar lines he'd just be playing more um prescribed jazz and i just wanted to know how you came down on bar lines oh well it depends on the music you know a lot of times people tell me uh or ask me you know why and how i play a certain way uh, the the music dictates the way you should play is my approach, and so I consider myself to be a stylist. So, but getting back to the nuts and bolts of your question, uh, I really feel and play in four to eight bar phrases. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really I really don't think bar to bar, and I really don't you know if if I'm playing a groove, it depends. So I there's a role that I try to fulfill. So within that, I try to establish a concrete foundation that gives whoever's playing with me uh, a certain comfort zone that they have like a, a, a soft pillow to kind of lay on. I've had uh, bass player friends of mine often, we jokingly say when we play together, because it's a mutual uh, admiration, uh, that it's like finding a pair of your favorite slippers in the closet when we play together. So I, I love it. It's like loafer. Yeah, your favorite pair of loafers. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so the thing is, is that, um, you know, we have a role. I don't, you know, I'm not quite sure. It's such a, an open, you know, playing. Uh, I don't... Uh, I'm not quite sure how I would even envision that because I don't relate to being able to play rhythms or or the groove 
you know, within bar lines. It's not, you know, if you got, if I'm reading, if it's a, a piece of music that has a chart, I usually look at four bars, four to eight bars at a time. And, uh, and as far as playing, I play in phrases. And uh, so if, if it's a 12-bar phrase or, you know, uh, being able to hear form and follow changes, that is, uh, I think, it's key to my style and part of my um, interpretation of playing, uh, just rhythm in general and patterns and things like that. A piece of music, if you're doing a 12-bar blues or a 16-bar piece of music, then and you being able to understand form, you know, so your basic form, A, A, B, A, or, um, and being able to hear changes like a one, four, five, being knowledgeable in music, I think is crucial for a drummer or any musician really, but a drummer, especially a lot of, um, when I was at my peak, I did a lot of sub work. Most of my, I would do doubles and triples and I was kind of like a, a hired gun that people knew that I was pretty much versed and being a student of recorded music, I listened to everything that I could come in because I could hear changes and I knew form. I could pretty much weigh, pretty much uh, sub and fake my way through any particular gig, no matter how well I knew that genre or not, you know, but uh, I kind of, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. You don't have to, an you don't have to uh, answer the question. You go where your mind takes you. I mean, I guess more to the point, can you talk about an experience you had uh, where you in, had, inter you know, maybe it was a band where you had internalized the music and uh, <clears throat> and basically, uh, you know, there was no need to read it uh, and you could just, oh. I mean, can you talk, I mean, is, is, can you just talk about that? Um, because a lot, you know, Max Roach would say, uh, you know, again, if you're subbing for stuff, that's a different story. But you know, he just in a, in in that context, sort of that hard bop context, he would tell his musicians. You know, he would have them. You know, they'd work up tunes in the morning, like four or five tunes quickly, and then guys like Stanley Cow and Gary Bartz would want to take the music out at the gig, and he'd say, "No, the minute you right. take the music out, the magic goes away." Can you talk about? Right. Can you talk about an early experience or just a band you were in where you internalized the music and allowed that that spontaneity improvisation to come out in the real time? Right, right. No, no, okay. Yeah, uh, uh, specifically, there were certain periods and certain rhythm sections and bands that the music allowed me that type of freedom, uh, you know, early on, on just mainly improvising, you know, like I said, so if I'm in an improvising situation, uh, that existed, but a lot of the music was very, uh, like I said, you had a, a, a role to fulfill and I always did that. But, uh, you know, there was a couple of bands starting out when we would be jamming and experimenting and learning and exploring our, our own personal voice. Right. But I would say the the very first time that would be the the most extreme or the freest because it was so new uh, would have to be in the early seventies. I when I uh, when Jaco Pastorius uh, played with with me when he I was with Wayne Cochran, uh, Charlie Brand, who was a guitar player and musical arranger was uh, 23, I was 22, and Jocko was 21. Wow. 
So obviously there was a lot of original instrumentals and a lot of times during solos and things like that, we were playing music basically because it, uh, of the style that Jocko was playing that didn't exist before this guy. So there was a, you know, there's a, uh, a lot of uh, spontaneity and improvised uh, living in the moment. You know, it was like, I often refer to that period of uh, having no fear. You know, we really didn't know. We knew that Jocko, this was different, you know, but uh, his style, he, he had all the other styles uh, incorporated in the thing that he was discovering and he kind of took it to a different place. But uh, that in that environment, yeah, it was because he was throwing things out there that I had never heard before. So you were kind of forced into reacting and responding and living in the moment, but all within the realm of the uh, confines of keeping it uh, musical and within uh, honoring the, the genre that you were playing. So even in my, my most uh, improvised musical environments, there was always a certain obligation to the musicians that I was playing with. You know, I've never been that introverted or introspective where it was just about what I was playing. My greatest thrill is being able to make the people that I play with comfortable that they enough that they have total freedom to be the best and that they can be. So mm. uh, the, the greatest compliment I've ever had is that people say, you know, oh my God, I've had so much fun. I didn't have to think about anything except what I wanted to do. I knew that the bottom was not going to fall out, that everything you did uh, supported, you know, the music and what uh, what was supposed to be done. You fulfilled your role. You know, the, uh, one of the other greatest compliments uh, a friend related to me that was told to him in a conversation uh, from Johnny Vidakovich, uh speaking about my plan, yeah. he said, yeah, Alan... He said, Alan just plays, you know, he never plays, uh, he, he always plays exactly what's supposed to be played. Never too much and never too little. It's, you know, so I, I kind of methodical, you know, take great pride in being economical on my playing that uh, there's no superfluous doodling or, you know, whatever I do has meaning. I think I, I'm very conscious. I want whatever I say musically to always have meaning and uh, be contributing to, to the art, you know, and, and the conversation. I feel, uh, you know, music is is a conversation. So if I'm doing all the playing, it's a, you know, and I'm stepping all over everybody else trying to fulfill my musical creativity, it's a one-sided conversation. So I've been a very, I would like to consider uh, myself a selfless player. It's all about making, you know, like I said, doing justice to the music, fulfilling a role. And in that, you know, I find great satisfaction, you know, and I've been in very free uh, situations and I've been in very restricted situations. I had uh, one guy I worked for for about six years, Tad Benoit, who's a, a, a national blues act. He would never count off songs. He would just start playing. And I could tell by the rhythm that what particular song, and so I would know what type of groove to play over that. Well, there came a particular period, he just 
we had we only did like two or three true zydeco tunes. So he started off in this zydeco rhythm, and I came and so I'm, but I played a different zydeco beat for each tune. So he started off after about the third night. I come in and I'm playing the wrong beat when when he started singing. I'm in the wrong song. So I went to the bass player. I said, "Man, what is going on? Tab is like he's playing this rhythm for this song that we're supposed to be playing. How do you know what song he's playing when he's playing the rhythm for the other song?" He said, "Well, it depends on what key he's in." I said, "Okay, well there, that's why I'm shot in the foot because you know I don't know what when you start playing. I don't have a melodic instrument in my hand. I don't play bass. I don't play guitar. So." I rely strictly on the rhythm to kind of give me a heads up on what tune he was playing. So from th- that point on, uh, he kind of gave me, the bass player and I had an understanding of like, if he knew that Tab was going someplace that I didn't recognize, he kind of w- whispered to me a mouth, you know, what's the name of the tune? That way I wouldn't have to like change beats in the middle of the tune to make it appropriate for what we were playing. Well, like... I have records on um, <coughs> from um, Florida with uh, this guitar player, Little Beaver, uh, and Jocko was they they named him differently. They called him like Jimmy Pastor. They they didn't even get his name right, but that was like early '70s R and B and funk. Uh, and you right. know, when I go back to you know Scotty Lafaro, Steve Swallow, the uh, Gary Peacock, Chuck Israels. I mean, the early 60s was an extension of vocabulary for the upright bass uh, in terms of becoming a lead instrument uh, or to have a voice in the conversation, so to speak. And I just, you know, by the early 70s, you already had, you know, a lot of ostinato stuff with Buster Williams and Rick Laird. And I'm just wondering... When you played with Jocko, what exactly he Wilton Felder on the West Coast? I mean, I just wonder what he was doing that was progressive at that time in that unit. Well, at that particular time, you know, his thing was, you know, obviously uh, he had started pretty much the things that he became famous for. He discovered while he was the 10 months or 11 months that he played with Wayne Cochran. Uh, I was with him when he pulled his frets out. Uh, you know, so even though he didn't create the fretless bass, he really gave it a voice. Um, so uh, false harmonics, playing melodies with harmonics, those are all things that really he kind of pioneered. Uh, he had, you know, he had just knowledge about, he had innate knowledge of this music. Um, he, uh, he wrote his first particular uh, composition, musical in- uh, instrumentals, while he was on that band, because he, he could write head charts and things like that. But mm-hmm. uh, we, Charlie Brent, who was the musical arranger, Jocko learned most of his voicings and a lot of his earliest musical education came from from uh, from hanging out with Charlie. Uh, this was back when Charlie used to make cassettes for me. Nobody had a cassette player, <laughs> so he would give me he would give me uh, cassette players. I would hang out in his room. And Charlie used to have a little Casio, and he'd be writing music, and Jocko would be in the room with his with his bass, and he would be standing over Charlie listening to all these voices and stuff. But I would be in the room with headphones on listening to this music that Charlie gave me to listen to, which was all types of music. 
and I would be playing these exercises, these ostinato ex rhythmical exercises. So Jocko couldn't tell what I was listening to, but he could hear these rhythms that I would just play on and on and on, and the tempos would change, the rhythms would change. So he would use that as like a metronome and play all these ostinatos wow. over these voices wow. and things that, that Charlie was was playing while he was writing out chords and stuff for the arrangements he was saying. So it was like a melting pot, you know, because one day I'm, I'm pulling off. That's how I happened to be in room when, you know, we were in the middle of one of these sessions just hanging. And we that's where we look over and we see Jocko, you know, in the hotel room, I think someplace in Indiana, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, he's literally pulling the frets out of his base. And Charlie's going, yeah. He said, have you lost your mind? You know, he tried to explain to him, uh, you know, what the deal is. And so, you know, because so Jocko always had this this uh, sound in his head, you know, and, and he said he wanted to produce. And so uh, he was a very compulsive type of guy. You know, he had something in his mind and he just did it. And so uh, he put it together and he played it that night like he played it all his life, you know. So uh, that was pretty much the beginning of that. You know? uh, yeah, that's, that's that's profound. I mean. You know, we have, uh, Alan, we have a game on this program called Name That Voice. I'm going to put this in for you right now. Pay attention to the content, and we'll come back. Okay. Okay, sure. Well, I think when I got the call from El Belito in August of 1971, hmm. I had already played with just about everybody there was to play in upstate New York. And I ran into Bill Huntington in underground Atlanta. He was playing with a pianist from Boston by the name of Ted Howe. I happened to walk past this place, and I heard this trio. I thought it was a jukebox. So I walked in. Bill was playing piano, uh, bass. Right. And we started talking. And he said, geez, would you like to sit in? I said, sure. So I sat in, played piano. About two months later, I got a call from El Boleto. He said, hey. He said, I uh, wonder if you'd be interested in coming down and playing. He said, uh, Bill Huntington just moved back to uh, uh, New Orleans. And he said he heard you in Atlanta. He said, spoke very highly of you. He said, that uh, would you be interested in playing with my quartet? Well, one thing led to another. I flew down. I thought, didn't know whether I was going to stay, but I thought I would try it, see if test it out, see if I liked it there. And one thing led to another, and I ended up staying. Mr. Robinson, being that you've been all around this world and, and the Crescent City, you want to take a guess at who that is? Uh, I, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's kind of not fair because I just recently, uh, uh, it's Rodrigo Sands. You know what? I haven't gotten to him yet. And it, you're right. It is not fair to listen to somebody's voice over the phone. No, I haven't gotten to that cat. That was Frank Pizzullo. Oh, okay. I don't know him because Rodrigo was from that, that, that same period. So I, and he did play bass. I thought he did. I thought he took, because uh, uh, he sounded a little bit like him. Yeah. I thought he took uh, uh, Bill Huntington's play. <laughs> Pizzullo was... Um, uh, obviously playing a piano, but, uh, you know, they have this, I just wonder about, um, if you could talk about, you know, I mean, I was floored interviewing Carl. Um, I mean, he's obviously just a total, um, I mean, he's cut from a very different cloth and he's a total character and, and he's such a great drummer, but he mentioned you as somebody who I just wanted you to talk and paint the picture a little bit about when you sort of the gigs before you really even knew uh, 
all the stuff that we're talking about, you know, you're real wet behind the ears. Like, where did where did you slot yourself in in New Orleans? Like, were the famous brothers there? The Open Door, Mundell, any like? Can you just kind of talk about the indigenous beginnings of Allen Robinson? Well, I uh, I was very lucky, you know. I uh, I grew up. My 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 uh, biological father had a real the real. Take the court. I was born in 1950, I'm, so I'm, I'm 71 years old. So in the early 50s, I had a, a brother that was nine years older than me, and he used to tape R&B shows like the Papa Stopper and things like that out of New Orleans. And so there would be, and he would play them for little parties in the garages and things like that. And my mother used to make him babysit me. So I was exposed to all this R&B music and things like that. And um, so that was kind of my earliest impression of music. But music was everywhere. I, uh, there was a, um, I, I was born on, uh, I lived on uh, Espinade in North Frere up until I was like five years old. And nobody had TVs back then. So I don't know if you know anything about New Orleans. It was a corner bar and a grocery store. Every every corner, you know, every other corner was that. So the city was filled with that. And I remember on Friday nights, my mother and my dad would go in and watch the Friday night fights in the bar. But on adjacent to it was the little sandwich shop. And they would put us in there and they would put the jukebox on autoplay. And they, they would give us roast beef, poor boys, and dicky potato chips. Oh, man, are you kidding me? Come on, that's and, great. And, so we're in there. So I'm like, what, five, six years old. And I'm hearing all the music. Because back then, you know, they, on those old jukebox, they had everything from 50s and the 60s, R&B, country and western, jazz, you name it. So it was just constantly. And we would dance and play and listen so we, we had that, and I uh, always was uh, – so that was my exposure to music as far as New Orleans music and a wide range of it. Now, as far as getting into music, I early on, I played in school. I was in a drum and bugle corps, and then when I was 13, uh, through a family associate of my mother's, uh, their son uh, – which was an elderly man at the time, um, they got me uh, a drum teacher. So at that point, he taught me all the drum beats. I studied with him between I was 13 and 15 years old. I got a drum set when I was 15 because up to that point, it was strictly rudimental. So I learned all the drum beats. I learned them. I played them at every tempo and every volume. And when I was in a junior in high school, I got asked to do a job will work with a band, a high school band, that worked four nights a week. I'm 16 years old. I don't know anything, but I could play these rhythms. So I, And that's why they hired me, because I had impeccable time. And he would, we'd get on the gig, and I wouldn't know what the song was. He would just tell me, play this groove or play that groove, and he would count it off. And that's how I learned songs. The very first song on my very first gig was Satin Dog. Hmm. So I played with this guy. So I'm I'm working four nights a week, and I used to go sit in and jam and just play. I, I remember it was so funny. I had a curfew when I was working. My mother, you know, 
I could come home at two or three o'clock in the morning. But when I go out on a date, I had to be home at like eleven o'clock at night, and I never understood that. You know, I said, "Mom, listen." She said, "Well, one you're working, and then the other one." Yeah, the other one. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other one. I don't know which. I don't know what you're doing. Right. You know? Right. So I worked with that guy, and he was a year older than me. His name was Teddy Ludwig. In fact, the band was called Teddy Ludwig and the Footwarmers. But he had the A-list <laughs> of players. The, that them and Dunks Honky Tonks were like had the child players where people like Badakovich and Ancho Trust. The list you it would blow your mind that those two bands, the A-list musicians that came out of New Orleans in the '60s, that would, as children played with those two particular bands. Uh, and so, wow. the guy that I worked with, he was a year older than me. So when he went to Loyola, he used to drag me down and hang out the basement, and that's where I met Johnny Fedakovich and Charlie Brent and all those guys that came out of Loyola in the 60s. I mean, the, 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 the names of the musicians, the makers and the shakers that came out of that university in uh, the late 60s is unbelievable. So through that connection, it exposed me, you know, because I hung out with them and uh, it exposed me to the guys and then uh, shortly after that, I started playing with a, a, a local uh, R&B band, uh, Lenny McDaniels and the New Era, who had a big horn band. They played everything and anything. This is the beginning of Blood, Sweat, and Tears in Chicago, and then the Psychedelics. So I played everything. And then I met uh, another drummer named Big Johnny Thomasy, who was huge. Played with Dr. John, Tom Waits, Freddie King, uh, I mean, you, you, you name it. So those two guys were kind of my... Uh, you know, Big Johnny into the, the, the commercial type of R&B and New Orleans type of style and Vodakovich into more of the jazz thing, through those two associations, opened up the doors to, to, to me to kind of, I went from Teddy to Lenny, and then uh, I played with Lenny for a year, and then I'm 20 years old, and through my Loyola connection, Wayne Cochran was pulling guys out of New Orleans. I got a chance through my association with the Loyola guys, I got hired for the Wayne Cochran gig. So that, you know, I was on the band two weeks and we played Fillmore West and I was recording and playing television shows. I'm 21 years old, out on the road, and it was a dream come true. And then now I'm 22, and basically the same thing happened to Jocko. He was, you know, playing locally in Florida and stuff, and all of a sudden, you know, he was playing with Wayne Cochran uh, of cover bands. And stuff, and so uh, at that time when he first saw Wayne, we had an eleven-piece, uh, eleven-horn band, four trumpets, three trombones, and four saxes, with a three-piece rhythm section. That Holy was the other thing. cow, dude! That's like I, I, think I mean, that, that, I mean, you have to learn to swing through a band. That's a huge band to swing through. Oh yeah, it was crazy. Oh, well, Charlie used to bring me in when he used to write tunes, and he would explain horn. It was just a life lesson. He would explain horn lines and things like that. That, well, look, you know, these guys, the horn players listen to certain things. I need you to play this this way to get them to play this tune, this line, phrase the way I want. He says, look, he says, brass players drag and reed players rush. And so they, I got 11 horns spread across the stage. So I said, Charlie, I said, so you telling me that the left side of the band is going to drag and the right side of the band is going to rush? And he says, 
well, yeah, you got a problem with that? Well, no, obviously not, you know. So the deal was is that if you're going to posture yourself, or the old joke, you know, if you're going to run with the big dogs, you can't be like a puppy, you know. And that was, uh, you know, that was his thing was, look, that's not my problem. You know, your job is to make this shit swing and, uh, you know, and make it, make it groove. Uh, you know, early on, I was still before Jocko, they, uh, when we started having 11 horns, uh, we played Vegas like 15 weeks out the year. And the, uh, nobody, that, because Fusion had just, you know, there was the, the groove of Weather Report Fusion didn't exist yet. Totally, you know, totally, Vision. yeah, totally. They, I mean, yeah, like yeah. it was more, it was like this, this, it was going from acoustic to electric, but it hadn't been fully uh, cemented yet. Yeah, well, it was this bombastic, bombastic, jam type of thing you know I mean, it's like the jazz guys wanted to play like rock guys and the rock guys wanted to play like jazz guys you know even miles davis said you know he saw he saw sly stone and you notice the, the the immediate change he saw sly stone uh at one of these festivals and he saw man this guy he says i want to be able to appeal to that audience and that's when his whole image changed his bitches through thing you know he wanted to be a, a, pop, a pop star and hmm. so anyway we're we're in Vegas, and uh, I'm quite sure you know who he is. Red Rodney oh. wanted to be in Red wanted to be in the band. At the time, he's in Vegas. He's playing the lead book at Caesars and the Flamingo. And on his day off, he flies to L.A. and plays the Flip Wilson show. Well, he won fifteen thousand dollars playing Kino, quit all his gigs, and came <laughs> out on the road with it. Really? Uh, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so it's like he was so crazy. Nobody wanted to room with him. So they said, well, sticking with the new guy. I mean, Lord knows what a favor did they do to me. Here I am, 20 years old. I'm rooming with Red Rodney. You can't buy that type of experience. This guy, and he, li he likes me, you know, because I'm, like, struggling. I'm still trying to, you know, earn my space or, and, you know, and try to fit in with the with the big dogs and stuff. And he took up for me a, a bunch of times where I was doing, trying to, I was experimenting with things. And, you know, the guys were, man, what the hell are you doing? And he, you know, he, he said, look, this is what this guy's trying to do. And you guys can't hear it. You know, and it was like, yeah. But it was wow. such a life Wow, lesson. his ears were but huge, yeah. man. His ears were huge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and of course, you know, it was the road, his road days were gone. Uh, pretty right. much. So he didn't last that long, but it was fun for him. He came out for three or four months, and, and that was about it. He couldn't do any more of that. But, I mean, I got the room with him, and, you know, we he sat and talked with me about music and life and being in prison and, and you know, and his, you know, his, his, uh, his drug years and just life, just life. And, I mean, what a what an education, you know, that's the biggest favor these people could have ever done for me. And uh, it was truly a, a, a life-changing experience. The knowledge, the wealth of knowledge that this guy, because we would just sit, and he would just sit and just talk to me about anything and everything. Could you know, we'd be hanging out in the dressing room during the day, waiting to go to rehearsal or after rehearsal, and so on and so on. But I thought you would get a kick out of that. I had to share that with you. So, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we have a another name that voice. I don't expect you to know it. Take a listen to it, and then we will come back. Uh, that's race, mind, consciousness, or whatever you want to call it. That's a social system that we've agreed to because we have been taught 
to fear and because we have been taught that there's not enough to go around and so we have been taught not to share right and so we have been taught that there is something that we have to there's some dark thing that we're supposed to protect ourselves against and it's fear and so therefore we have created this fear and we have perpetuated this fear and the Holy Spirit is there all the time but there's a little phrase I use the chosen of God are the people who choose God Mm. you're not chosen by some spirit on the outside that says you know lo and behold you're the one Mm. Or you're the one of you're one of the four hundred and forty four thousand that have been chosen. Hmm. The ones who choose, the ones who say, Holy Father, I believe, I know you're there, I feel your spirit, I reach out to you. When you reach out, the spirit reaches back. I tell people, God is waiting. God's always been there. God's not going anywhere, but God is waiting. And when you open the door, the angels sing. Alan, that was uh, my third interview with uh, the great wind player, Ernie Watts. <laughs> and, um, and I'm and I'm not trying to get all religious, but I wanted to ask you a, a couple twofold question. Um, you know, Melvin uh, Melvin Lasty uh, had the last. Um, he had a, a, a real um, a spirit church in New Orleans where they the he had a drum kit on the on the pews. There was a lot of holy rollers. I remember Cyril Neville was going to some denominational church where they spoke Latin and it meant nothing to him. And he used to go to this church, Melvin Lath, uh, pastor Lasty church and, uh, and just feel the rhythms coming through the wall. And so I wanted to know how much of that, not that you were in these, ch- these Holy roller churches, but I guess more to the point, like in this time that we're in right now, uh, so much of music for me over the last couple of years has become about healing. I mean, so much mu- musicians are healers. Uh, Johnny's a healer. Uh, James Singleton's a healer. You're a healer. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. But yet it's just seen as this, um, on the pop level, uh, music is now made for pacification. It's made for multitasking. It's not made for deep contemplation or introspection in my mind. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about when you got the memo about music being a healing force and how important music is to the social order of, of the world. Well, you know, it's, I've been playing for like 56 years plus, so my spiritual musical journey has had many levels, you know. I firmly believe when applied, music is the ultimate healer. Uh, you know, Charlie uh, did, when he lived in L.A., worked for Children's Hospital as a music therapist. And uh, I've got a, a 
famous drummer friend of mine, Eddie Taduri, that lives in L.A., that has a, a foundation. It's a, a, the Rhythm Arts Foundation that he deals strictly or mainly with autistic children and special needs children through rhythms and, and that type of thing. He did an interesting story. He broke his neck. He was he was surfing or body surfing uh, in in, uh, in the Pacific Ocean and was paralyzed from his neck down. Wow. And he was in the hospital. And at some particular point, he there was you know he was in a room uh, with someone and they he requested him and the other person it was a kid for a pair of drumsticks to just put them in his hand. And so I don't remember the timeline on it, but anyway, at some particular point, he began to regain his feeling. And he eventually walked out of there. To this day, he plays, he walks. You would never know that this guy had once it. He was like a miracle. Wow. You know, I, you know I, I, the, the, the human spirit is extremely powerful. I, you know, I don't know, you know, uh, it, it can be directed and used at different levels. I don't know how much, con certain people have more control of it and tapped into it as far as being able to manipulate it. But I do believe it's a powerful thing. I think um, it's, a, it's a lost art, but uh, as far as, you know, music has become uh, the advent of uh music videos has, has turned, you know, music into a visual, a visual medium. Absolutely. So, yeah. So the, the, it's, it's lost all it's sent. It's been dumbing down. Modern music has been dumbing down to the lowest common denominator that I can't, you know, technology where it's taken, you know, the new music, uh, it, it's hard to find that new music is new. It's just the music. It's just, they put a new dress on it, and that's that's it. But that being said, there are if you have to search it out. But so many people, the mainstream doesn't even know that it really exists. But you know, the healing music and the art is there, will always be there, in small in small portions. You know, um, unfortunately, it's it doesn't have the wide mainstream uh, appeal and exposure that it should have is that because we've just changed our learning medium music from auditory to visual yeah yeah, yeah for sure yeah you know and 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 that it's what you know like before music you if if you you know without the video music spoke to you in your own vision right you created you created your own music video of your vision where now it's done for you. You don't have that freedom where, okay, you're watching, it's it's all about the video. It's a predetermined interpretation of the song. You don't have that freedom anymore to be able to, you know, close your eyes and just listen to that song and go back to a time and place or a smell or a person that it's personalized, where now it's just a dummy down stimulus of visual you know, special effects and this and that. It, it, I, I think the, the people are just cheated of that experience. It don't exist anymore.
It's exactly right. Uh, and there's no ability for, for fantasizing uh, or just sort of creating imagery or forms in your head based on your favorite records, although I still listen to records and I don't think I've ever... Um, I just, you know, um, I wanted to ask you about... Um, so the first week of October, um, you know, um, we were all going <coughs> to, uh, a few friends of mine and I were going to head down to New Orleans for Jazz Fest. And, uh, and, and then, and, you know, the big sponsors backed out, so they canceled the Jazz Fest. But I uh, am still going to go down the first week. And I wonder about, um, because in my mind, well, number one, are you? Do you have any gigs? The other thing is, I also feel like, well, just because they cancel the jazz fest doesn't mean that there's not going to be. There's still going to be music going around, and and I would love to come and see you if you are playing live. Yeah, well, at this particular point, my my live plan is very restricted. Uh, over the years, like I said, I uh, on a side note, I've been a private chef for some twenty twenty years. Uh, and my client that I work for now is, uh, you know, I, I, I cook five nights a week and uh, cooking has become a bit, it is a very creative outlet for me. Sure. And the, the music I, right now I'm only doing uh, Luther's big band dates. He's doing a couple of trio dates here and there, but I, you know, I'm not doing any of those mainly. Like I said, uh, I got to a point where, uh, I love music and and still that, but I hate gigging. I'm so you know I've been playing for I've been a full time musician since I was 16 years old, and hmm. uh, you know love, dealing with drunks, lugging that play, and it's just you know it's I've lost the love for for live performances. You know I I'm in the middle. I, I still have I have several projects. I don't know you know I in 2000. Uh, uh, Prior to 2009, I had a production company. Some people that out of uh, Florida were looking to do uh, some music for music sakes, sake, uh, and look for people that kind of flew under the radar. And uh, I've done three CDs with them, and I'm getting ready, working on a new project, and I'm working on a, on a book. So I'm actively actively involved, uh, you know, still with my music and things like that, I, uh, I was able to do my second CD was a kind of a tribute to uh, my years with Wayne Cochran and people uh, with Luther and people that I've played with over the years. And it, it's called uh, dreams realize my life and music. And it's with the who's who of New it's an 11 horn band. So we went back to the Cochran type of uh, format with that big horn band and uh, you know, I was, it, it was very, very gratifying. Uh, it kind of captures this um, my style of playing and the people that I associated with. I did a couple. I did a, uh, a Jocko instrumental called Amelia that he wrote when he was on a Wayne's band. There's some original originals on there, instrumentals, and there's uh, so you know. As far as the gigging, I go full circle here which was the name of my my first CD. Uh, you know, as far as live gigging, no, I don't think That's I'll cool. be. That's cool. No, but I mean, I'd, I'd love to come over and get a, 
and get a meal. I'd love to get a, get a, a meal. What's your favorite thing to cook? I mean, you like uh, you like well, what? Yeah, I like it. I like it all. You know, it, it depends. You know, I mean, I kind of uh, the the thing that I was lucky enough when traveling, I got to eat. You know, at, at some of the best restaurants and pretty much around the world stuff. And so, uh, I kind of my 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 gift and my knack is that I retain whatever I eat. I can pretty much duplicate. Wow, so, that is so freaking cool, man! I can barely reheat yeah. stuff, man. That's <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Well, I tell people if you grew up in New Orleans, you don't know how to cook. Shame on you, you know. So wow. I, I love it, dude. No, I'm coming. Yeah. We're, if you have a drum kit in your house, we can do a. A Facebook Live video. We don't. I don't. It's. It, you don't need to have a gig in order to be on the Jake Feinberg show. But when I'm coming down there in October, I'm gonna look you up and we'll catch okay. a hang. All right. Yeah. I. Yeah. For sure. Uh, let you know. I, I will make a mental note of that, and then we'll get back together and we'll set something up. I live in, like an hour north of uh, of uh, New Orleans. Oh, that's on cool. The north shore of the lake. The north shore of the lake. But we'll set something up. Where, you know, uh, where we can sit down and, uh, you know, I got a kid upstairs that, you know, uh, I don't play a whole lot, but, you know, we'll set up something where you and I can kind of like do some things. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, get a little a format of maybe some things or some beats you would, would be curious about and we'll, or different styles. And uh, we'll just do a little hang, maybe do some lunch. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you, <laughs> I'll send you a couple of samples of what I have in mind that I've already done over the last 10 years and you can look at them and then we'll, and we'll, and we'll tailor it. And, uh, Alan Robinson, man, thank you for being you. Thank you for your contributions and, uh, just, uh, stay the course and be safe and, and I'll see you in a few. All right, Jay. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, you know, to talk and, uh, you know, share some things with you. Okay, buddy. All right, man. I'll, I'll get this up later tonight for the, for the peeps. All right. We'll spread it around. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I'd like to send it to my producer for sure. Absolutely, man. Be cool. All right, Jay. Thank you, buddy. Later, man. Peace. Bye-bye. We'll be back with Carolina Goldberg on the other side.